stain, every scar, every sin, every offense that we bring into the, our own world and that others bring in, Lord, you, you clean it. You give us a fresh start. You forgive. Thank you for that amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome. Why don't you turn and say hi to a couple people, and then you can have a seat. Hope your week is going well, and uh, whether it's going well or not, this is a good way to spend the middle of it, right? I mean, because either we come and we're excited about what God has done this week, or we're excited about what He's gonna, how He's gonna bail us out in the second half of the. Just turn me off. Janice, you're getting too much power. <laughs> Romans chapter 16. It's been quite a journey through this great book of Romans. And, you know, we, we've seen so much that, that Paul has shared, really, about the nature of a relationship with God, um, our Christian walk, just um, explored in, a, in, a, in an as in-depth a way as the scriptures do. Now we've just come to his conclusion. You know, he had already kind of concluded at the end of chapter 15 when he said, now the God of peace be with you all, amen. And now this is kind of the P.S., oh, by the way. And he greets a lot of people who were there in Rome. Remember, he hadn't been to Rome, but of course he knew a lot of people who were there who had gone there from other places or that he had met. And then he gives a few greetings from the people who were with him at the time too, but um, a lot of little, I'm not gonna, you know, I've seen people take this chapter and analyze what each name means and, you know, and make up things that aren't even there, but, you know, we do wanna go through it, finish this book strong, and, and there, are some, there are some great lessons in here as well. So beginning with verse one, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant, of the church in Centria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. So this woman, Phoebe, was on her way to Rome. And so Paul was just putting in a good word for her and saying, hey, when when Phoebe gets there, treat her in a respectful way. It's amazing how much he has to say about women and in relationship to women in a culture where women would have been pretty discounted and marginalized. Um, and Phoebe, in fact, the, the word there that's translated servant is, is the word deacon. And so you could say she was a deaconess. It's hard to say because the word can just mean servant or it can be used in a more formal sense. But, but obviously, Phoebe was someone who had been a, a huge help to Paul. And indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. So she's a woman who had been a great help. Now, the fact that he says, um, assist her in whatever business she has need of you probably means that Phoebe was going to Rome on business, that she had some kind of business responsibilities to fulfill there. And he was, and Paul was saying, hey, make sure that you help her out in this. I, I like the way that Paul's looking out for her. You know, sometimes the working world can be a tough place for a woman. And not that women aren't as strong as men to be able to deal with it, but I think though, though women, I mean, women are stronger than men, let's face it. You know, if, if, uh, if men had to deliver babies, there would be no civilization. 
But, you know, men compare pushing out a little kidney stone, you know, <laughs> that's barely visible, and they go, oh, yeah, that's, that's like having a baby. Yeah, like having a baby this big. <laughs> but, and I've had kidney stones, so I know what I'm talking about, and I know it hurts, but I don't want to have a baby. But, you know, it, it, it certainly isn't that, that God looks on women necessarily as being weaker, and he talks about them being more delicate and, and the weaker vessel, but it certainly isn't because of capabilities. I think honestly, and again here, I, I may be coming off totally sexist or something, but I think that, when, that women at their best are showing vulnerability and are being protected and looked out for. I just think that even though women are perfectly capable of functioning without a man looking out for them, I think that the scriptural precedent is that men ought to be treating them as treasures, as, as value. And here you see, you know, this isn't someone that we know anything else about, and yet Paul's looking out for her. She's obviously capable of going to Rome by herself and conducting business. And yet, and if the whole world wants to be egalitarian and treat women just like men and everything else, um, fine. We can't, we can't change society. We can't fight against that whole thing. But we can certainly make it so that it's not that way in the church. And I think it's important that we try to do that. Now, it's hard because nowadays you go to open a door for a woman and she may really appreciate it or she may be totally offended. Like you're saying I can't open a door by myself. And, but I think men that we need to take a chance and, and be a little more concerned for the women in our midst. In this day and age where there's no shortage of, of men who are jerks and therefore women who end up alone sometimes, um, either for short periods of time or for, or you know maybe for their life, um, it's not enough just for us to go. Well, I'm looking out for my woman. We should be looking out for all women. The church should be a place where a woman feels like she can come here and 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 not be pressured and not be hit on and things like that. It, but a place where it's like we all say. We'll take care of the women. We'll, we'll make life a little more comfortable. We can at least make this part of their life feel like you don't have to have the pressure to perform in the, you know, out there in the world, maybe it's a different thing. But with us, um, I think we could definitely grow in the area of all of us looking out for all the women in the same way that hopefully we do with children. Now, again, because of weirdos and everything, now you're almost afraid to look out for somebody else's kid. Back in the old days, it would be everybody was looking out for everyone's kids. It wasn't that unusual for <clears throat> you to get spanked by the neighbor if you were doing something wrong. It was just like, hey, whoever's handy, just do it. And if I know the neighbor's not a weirdo, I'm happy. If they want to spank my kid and save me the trouble... By all means, do it. But it's this sense of community that, and, and not to an extreme, you know, it takes a village to raise a child and all that, but, it, but just like, hey, we're in this together. We're family. And, and so I love the way Paul demonstrates this with, with Phoebe, who, who was a, a good servant who had been a huge help serving the Lord, now she's on a business trip, and he's just putting in a word for her and saying, treat her special. And, and I think that that's a word for us to be treating all women, guys, special. I mean, really, we should do that. And it's once in a while, it'll, you know, you'll get that dirty look or whatever. But for the most part, um, I like this attitude, and I think it's something that God would would have us to, you know, work on a bit more. Because, you know, women who get all snarly and tough, it's, it's really because nobody has been looking out for them and they feel like they have to look out for themselves. 
And um, so as our sisters in the Lord, you know, we should, men should be cognizant of and sensitive to the women who are around us and really be blessed to have them as our sisters and really treat them like a sister. And so Paul really shows this here. And then obviously, and in this passage, when you go down the thing, you'll see there's a lot of interesting issues in terms of what role a woman is to have in the church. Now, because Paul lays out so clearly the qualifications of you know elders and and deacons, um, I uh, you know I certainly am not someone who thinks it's okay for a woman to be a pastor. For instance, I just I don't see that in the scripture unless her pastoral role is one of just pastoring over women and and children because scriptures talks about that. So if somebody wants to call themselves a pastor and do that, I wouldn't object to it. But but I think there are distinct roles within church leadership. And yet, um, women are to have prominent roles in the ministry of the church. And you see in a lot of Paul's writings that that was definitely the case. Now, on the other hand, women are told, Paul says that, I, and it tells Timothy, I don't allow women to teach or to uh, literally usurp authority over a man. And so women certainly have the capability of bowling over men and taking over. And probably most of you have been in churches or have been around churches where women run everything. And what you end up there is a church of women and weak men. But what, what we need in the church is strong men and strong women. They're complementarian. They go together. But you just have to be careful because if you let women take over, they will in a big way. And frankly, they just don't do well in that role. And so we constantly... I love our women's ministry. I love all the women who are involved in ministry here at the church. They're all a complete blessing to me. And yet, there is an element where men should be challenged by the faith of women. And we say, we need to step up so that we don't become a feminine church. And, you know, today, churches are tending to be more feminized. If you look at a lot of the modern worship songs and everything there you know if a man is thinking about what he's thinking when he sings the songs it'll almost creep him out you know there's songs and they're they're womanly kind of songs i mean okay for a woman to think of having this romance with jesus okay i'll go for that but you know i don't want to sing about jesus breathing on my neck you know it's just not, <laughs> this is not the way i relate to him and, and so we have to, it's important. God made men to be men. He made women to be women. It's important that we don't blur the roles, but it's also important that we don't try to snuff out anything that God might be doing. And so I am all for strong women in the ministry. I really am. But I am also for men stepping up and being even stronger and taking their role. And I think most women will readily say they want men to do that. Most women don't want men to act all HGTV on them. You know, they expect a guy to be a guy. And, and so, but with Paul, and a lot of times Paul gets the rap of being misogynist, being anti-woman, but when you see his attitude toward women and, and you see him giving them props and naming them and talking about their important ministries and everything, I certainly don't see that at all. I think somewhere we have to find a balance between what defined roles are and yet where is God's giftedness and do we give people an opportunity to function within their areas of giftedness? And I think the history of the church is one whereby women have been primarily denigrated to secondary roles and and it's because of insecure men who 
who don't want to stand up and be men, so it's easier for them to push women into their place, their perceived place, so that, so that it's easy for men to run things. Um, and that's not, that wasn't God's design for the church at all. And amazingly, in a Roman culture where that would have fit perfectly, that's not the way the church was run. We can tell that. And so, um, so anyway, Phoebe is someone who he regarded as a deacon in the church, someone that he regarded as a sister in the Lord, someone who he was reminding the Christians there to help her out, support her, and treat her with respect in the same way that you would treat a man who was involved in ministry with respect. Then greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Priscilla and Aquila, interesting couple, who traveled around a lot, and and really in a lot of ways, they were the major support, considerably, for the Apostle Paul himself. They encouraged him and worked with him, but not only that, they opened the door for him to have employment. Um, He was a tent maker, and he likely was trained as a tent maker by them because he worked with them. As they worked alongside each other in ministry, he was also having the capacity to be able to support himself in tent making. Tent making was was a profession in those days that would pay very well. It was a good way to make a living, but it's certainly not something that a young Jewish rabbi would have been trained to do. Paul was born with a silver spoon in his mouth and had the greatest of education, was on the fast track to spiritual leadership, and you know, in every way, he was someone who was bred to be a professional religionist. When he got saved, all of a sudden, tough to make a living doing that when you've turned your back in some respects on the religion that you worked your way up into. And, and so he needed a way to support himself. Churches couldn't do it. They didn't have any money. And besides that, the way Paul was, he offended people so much that it isn't likely that he had a huge following of people rallying to his support. Most of the time, Paul was running from one place to another after being stoned. He, he was not the superstar pastor. And he didn't have the great charisma. He talked about coming in simplicity. All of the extra-biblical references talk about him being a little, a little crotchety guy with eyes that he couldn't see very well, and they ran a lot. He had some sort of disease probably in his eyes. And he just wasn't the kind of, well, as they would say today, he had a good face for radio. That's why I'm on the radio. But, but, um, but at the same time, he had an important role as an apostle to go plant churches. Even though a lot of those churches, after he planted them, they probably didn't appreciate him, it would seem like. And he was, when he wrote back to them, it was always to correct all the things that the people had messed up who took over after he left. But it was so important for him to have a way to support himself. And it was also cool that he had somebody like Priscilla and Aquila who would, um, they saw through Paul and really appreciated him. They were smart, both of them. They're, in this case, Priscilla's name is used ahead of Aquila's, which would suggest that perhaps she was the dominant one, although I've heard people preach entire sermons on that, and the fact is, in other places, you put it all together, and, and, and Aquila's name is listed first at least as many times as Priscilla's is, so it would depend on the situation. But at, at best, they had an interesting ministry, They were in Corinth when Paul was there. They were in Ephesus. Now at this time, they are in Rome. Um, 
probably endured a bunch of persecution, especially in the later days in Rome when, when they were throwing all the Jews out of, of Rome. Um, but, you know, they were the type of people who saw past the rough edges on people and they just wanted to help. Remember, they had that role with Apollos. Apollos was the opposite of Paul in some ways. Probably not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but man, could he preach. He was like Ted Baxter on the... Well, you probably, you're all too young to remember Ted Baxter, but he was like a newsman that you see on TV today, say a weatherman. Looks good, sharp, can really say nothing really well. And so he was preaching, but he didn't really know what he was talking about. And Priscilla and Aquila took him aside, and they discipled him. And he was a guy who had incredible power, and they channeled that power. They, they saw his gift, and where other people would have been looking at Apollos and just going, you know, he's, he, he doesn't even make sense half the time. Yeah, he has a great voice, and he's a good-looking guy, but, you know, we can't have him teaching us. Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and ministered to him and nurtured him along. And he was then later groomed to to pastor that church there in Corinth and went to Ephesus as well. So they seemed to be a kind of couple that, though they didn't put themselves up to the forefront, they always had a church in their home. They always opened their home up. But their ministry seemed to be primarily personal and they seem to really love to support a young minister who's getting started, even to the point where, again, providing training and employment for them and things like that. So they're, a, they're an interesting couple. When you read everything that the Scripture says about them, put the pieces together, um, I, I'm going to enjoy meeting them. I'm, I'm kind of curious what they look like and how they relate to each other and you know, if they just constantly banter back and forth between themselves or, you know, I'm just thinking, what, what, were, what was this couple like and what an incredible influence they had on the history of the church? What an amazing input they had into a guy like Paul. And I, you know, and it makes me think too, how many people today have that kind of heart? So often we can be so critical of young ministers. We can be so critical of people who kind of don't really have it together. And it's so, I so, uh, you know, there were times when I was a young minister when there were certain people who were just supportive. They just made me feel like you can do this. They made me feel like I'm praying for you. And I have some people who are still fulfilling that role in my life for sure. But man, when you're young, it's so important. There are so many times when I would have just hung it up. If it wasn't for a few people who could see through my rough exterior, who could, you know, I never had a shortage of people who told me how offensive I was. (laughs) But, you know, and that just, it's still, that comes. And I understand it. And I agree with you. I am... I'm really disgusting in a lot of ways. But, but to have people who will come alongside you and just make you feel like, hey, you know, you're not done yet. You can grow. You can do this. You're, you're getting better. Now, it kind of cracks me up when today sometimes I'll have people who say, you know, who've known me for years at Calvary and everything, and they go, Boy, I was listening to your teaching on the radio the other day, and and um, just in the last couple of years, you've really gotten better. I mean, you your teaching, I, I, I've watched it over the years, and over the last two years, I think you've improved more than ever. And they're talking about Proverbs studies that I taught like eight years ago, and they're rerunning them on the radio. So... You can't always make everything out of that, but, I, but at the same time, I think, and Paul remembered individuals who helped him, and maybe they didn't become really famous, but they were very supportive. And that's what 
you know, I want to be. When I have a chance to sometimes talk, meet with young pastors, and a lot of times they're discouraged and everything, I, I love to be able to do that, to, to just be able to make them feel like you can do this, you can make it, rather than, you know, here, let me tell you five things that's messed up about you. And so Paul seems to have really appreciated Priscilla and Aquila. Um, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, maybe a play on words because he worked with them, and yet in Christ Jesus they were working together even when they were in the same place or when they were in different places. They were partners for life, and they risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks but also all the churches of the Gentiles. In other words, everybody whose lives they've touched, the people in Corinth, the people in Ephesus, are still saying, wow, what an impact Priscilla and Aquila made in our church and in our town. Leaving a place with a good impression. Not leaving and slamming it on the way out the door and where, you know, yeah, people who are with you now think you're great, but your last five churches all hate you because you hate them. It was the idea of, you know what, everybody feels this way. And Paul's attitude, I think, was because they supported me and ministered to me, then everyone that I have ministered to appreciates the role that they played in enabling me to be able to do what God has called me to do. And then he says also, likewise, greet the church that is in their house. So, Again, in Rome, they opened up their home to, and, and probably owning their own business, tent making, like I say, was a good profession. They probably always were able to get a decent sized home, probably ran their business out of the home, probably had a, a decent space. If God has given you a decent space, make sure that you're open to using it. Maybe, maybe God would have you to start a Bible study in your home, and if you're not a Bible study teacher, then find somebody else to teach it. Seems like a lot of people who like to teach also live in cruddy places, so stick them into, you know, find somebody as a teacher and put them in your home and open it up for that. Open your home for missionaries to stay with you or to reach out to others in, in a way that God would lead you to, because, um, and, and again, it's, you have to have limits. You don't, if you open your home up to everyone, then it'll never be available for those times when God really wants to use it. Um, so you have to stay flexible, but the but real justification for having more space than you need would be, I wonder how God can you know, use this. And I know at our house when we have the, the uh, young adults, the college and career fellowship that meets at our house. And uh, there are times, frankly, when it's Friday night and I'm exhausted, had a hard week, a long week, and the last thing I want is, ding dong, oh boy, they're here. And, and you know, then Ann and I have to go, go out to dinner. I go hide in my study or whatever. And, you know, kids are loud and messy and everything. And yet, it's the best thing we do. It's the best thing that happens in our house. I, I love seeing people come and ministering to each other and worshiping the Lord and everything. And so that was the way they were. And see, for them in those days, and it wasn't the formal house church like the house church movement today is. It was all they had. They had no other place to meet. So whenever Christians would get together, there were certain houses that were open for that. And so whatever the house was open for, then yeah, the, the body of Christ meets there, not in a super formal, structured way necessarily, but just that place was a place that was open. And you know, it's one of the reasons, by the way, why a biblical requirement for an elder is that he be hospitable. If you, if you really want to keep to yourself and keep everyone away from you and you don't really want to be open to other people, then you're not representing the spirit of which God wants us to represent. And so opening up your home and making it available, you know, uh, it's inconvenient, but 
That's how the church started. And anytime you have a handful of people, you bring, invite them over to your house for dinner or whatever, that's church. I mean, that's maybe as close to church as what the New Testament church was a lot of times. Get together, break bread. They, I'd encourage you sometimes when you have people over, serve communion. You don't need to be ordained or anything to do that. Just, just get some friends together and celebrate communion together. Put on a recorded music and worship the Lord a little bit. Talk about a Bible study maybe that you've just been to or, you know, just live church instead of this business of church just being something that we do on Sunday or Sunday and Wednesday as the case may be. Um, for them, it was life. It was just what they did. And it was by necessity too, survival. They needed to stay together. And so along that line, Priscilla and Aquila had, a, had people who met in their home um, as the church. Greet my beloved Epanetus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. Probably this guy was the first one who got saved in the area of Achaia, which is if, you're, if you think of, the, of Greece as a country, you had Macedonia up in the northern area. Achaia was down in the boot part. So Corinth is in Achaia, Athens is in Achaia, the capital kind of area of Greece is right there. So this was a guy who was the first convert from that area. And so Paul just says, hey, you know, now he's in Rome. Tell him I, tell him I said hi. Greet. I, I love him. Greet my beloved Epanetus. He, Paul probably, maybe this was the first guy Paul led to Christ. And, and yet, you know, he always remembered that as a special as a special thing. Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Again, another woman, we don't know anything about her other than she's named Mary, and people have suggested, oh, it's Mary, the mother of Jesus, or Mary Magdalene, and you can get all kinds of conspiracies about either of them being in Rome. It's just somebody named Mary. Chances are, if it was Mary Magdalene, if it was Mary, the mother of Jesus, he would have specified that. But they all knew who she was, so it doesn't really matter. And again, she labored much for us. So it's someone that had supported him in ministry and had worked alongside of him. The idea of laboring, um, it's really important in Christianity. And it was for Paul especially. He often was talking about those who labored with us and co-laborers and things like that. And if you get involved in ministry and you're ministering with other people, then you figure out really quickly why this was a big deal to him. Because there's nothing more fulfilling and rewarding than to be with other brothers and sisters in the Lord and working with them. It's, I feel sorry for people, and, and sometimes I probably err too much on the side of being too easygoing, but... I never want to be up here pushing, you know, we need people to serve God. We need ushers. We need greeters. We need donut people. We need Sunday school teachers. We need this. We need that. Because I don't want anybody to serve out of compulsion. Um, and so I, I'm not a recruiter. But in general, I'm telling you, if you're not serving God in some way with others, then you're missing out. You're missing out on some of the greatest connections that you could ever make in your life. Serving God with others, arm in arm, hand in hand, serving him together, it's, it's really what makes life worth living in a lot of ways. And it creates a kind of fellowship that, that you don't get any other way. And you can see that Paul didn't forget people that he worked with. I, I think of people in our church who I have a, a close relationship with, but it started when we were at a work day working together. Or it started when we were down in Mexico doing the shoebox outreach or you know, a missions trip or something like that. Those great connections that you make when you serve God together. 
And unfortunately, people can sometimes turn it around and act like, oh, poor God, he needs our help, we need to chip in. That's not it at all. It's a, it's a privilege to, to be able to serve God. It's a privilege to be able to give to God's work and to see fruit from that. Um, so we shouldn't turn it backwards and humanize it. And at the same time, we should always understand that the best connections that we will ever make will be when we connect with each other as we serve God together. It's why, you know, Jesus, when his family came and they were trying to, they were really trying to shut him up. They were embarrassed by what he was doing. And they said, hey, your mother, your brothers are out here. And he said, who are my mother and my brothers? And he gestured at the people around him. You guys are. And, and there is that closeness and that intimacy of being a part of the family of God that comes from serving the Lord together, finding what God has called you to do, faithfully serving in that way and sharing in that. You know, maybe the ministry that God has given you is something that you kind of do on your own, but you still can share that with others. I mean, I, I am... I always get excited when I get an email from somebody who's sharing how they were able to minister to somebody. And I love it when it's a spinoff from something that maybe I shared in a Bible study. You know, like I had a family who were talking about Sunday. We had, one of the things I did on Sunday was share about the Roman road, how you can use those four scriptures Romans 3, 23, 6, 23, 5, 8, and 10, 9, in order to share the gospel. And after church, um, their son, their young son, had said, I think it's time we do that with grandpa. And, you know, and it was like, and they did, and, and I'm just, I, I was so blessed. If nothing else good came out of it, not only blessed to see somebody applying the word of God, but blessed that something that I threw out there was actually somebody else used it in a way that was much more profound than anything I even maybe had in mind as I'm sharing it. And yet, when you share with others the fruit of what God is doing in your life, you're letting them in on the blessing. And you know, there are people in our church where I feel like I'm partnering with them in what they're doing, even though I can't always, you know, like, Arlen has that women's prison ministry that she does, and some of the rest of you are involved in it too. And I haven't been able to go out there yet, and they have a graduation this Saturday and really wanted to get out to it, but I don't think I've, for some reason, my um, ID hasn't cleared yet. I, maybe an old um, outstanding warrant or something. But, um, <laughs> but also, my week has just been crazy, and I just I don't see how I can give half a day, but... But when I hear, I get the reports of what God is doing in these ladies and, and the hope that they have and the, and the way God is changing their lives, I'm like, I'm so glad that we get to do this together because when I hear about it, I'm a part of it. I'm worthless to the Spanish outreach, but they're my partners, and I'm so excited when I hear that God's doing some cool things. Everything that happens not just in our church, but in other churches too. When I hear of something, I'm participating in it. And so if God is using you and good things are happening, but you feel like nobody knows it, share that with some people. Put the word out there just to solicit prayer and to, and to praise the Lord. You know, somebody's probably gonna think that you're just blowing your own horn. And, you know, you have to know your own heart and make sure you're not. But that's not a good reason to shut yourself off from contact with others in the ministry because ministry is meant to be done together. And so we need to make that a, a priority. He always did. Um, then greet Andropicus and Junia, um, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. Uh, Junia is a woman's name, by the way. Um, and so this verse has stirred up a lot of interest among people because if you read it in a certain way, 
you can see that this is a woman apostle, that Junia was an apostle. Now, most likely with the construction that's here, um, Andronicus and Junia, Junia is probably his wife or his sister, and so they're seen as being involved in this together. Two different schools of thought on whether or not he is an apostle. Um, Apostle is sometimes used in a more generic sense in the New Testament that would include anyone who's maybe a church planter, um, a missionary. And so apostle with a small a, um, I'm okay with with calling missionaries apostles if, if you really want to. And in that case, that may be what he's talking about. Most likely not an apostle with a capital A, someone with apostolic authority who was involved in laying the foundation for the church because we don't have any other um, we don't have any other information on them, and so it's not likely. Generally, apostle with a capital A is reserved for well, initially the twelve, and then the eleven, but they still called them the twelve, and then a lot of people believe Paul was actually taking the place of Judas, and so that those 12, some people would say, well, but Matthias was voted in in Acts chapter 1, but we don't, it doesn't say that that was right or wrong, um, and it wouldn't matter. They'd call him the 12 even if there were 13 of them, but, but they had a unique role as having been witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus and so on. Um, I don't think that, oh, the other interpretation, by the way, of this some people would make them, this man and woman, both apostles with a capital A. Some people would make them apostles with a small a. To me, the most likely interpretation is they're of note among the apostles. That is, the apostles have a great deal of respect for them for what they're doing. So that's, that's what I think it means. He also calls them my countrymen, and it could mean that... Um, it, it could mean that, well, they came from the same place that Paul came from, but the word there also just means kinsmen, like my, my family, and so he's likely just saying, hey, they're like family to me, they're kin. He uses that again um, for uh, Herodian down in verse 11. But they're of note. And they also were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Stachus, my beloved. Notice how individual attention to people that we don't know anything else about, but he's, he's expressing his affection for them, not in a trite way, but he's like, they're my beloved, they're my kinsmen, they're my fellow laborers. I, he, he, he takes some time here, and I, and I think that we would do well to appreciate people in our lives and to express that. I don't do that nearly as much as I should, and maybe you do, maybe you don't. Greet Apelles, approved in Christ, another title of just someone that, you know, he goes, Christ likes you. <laughs> That'd be a good one. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Now, when it says they are of the household of Aristobulus, he doesn't say, greet Aristobulus. And so it could be that Aristobulus had a church at his house, and so he's just referring to the whole church. But um, what a lot of commentators believe about this, and, and we'll see the household of Narcissus down in verse 11, the same construction, um, that perhaps Aristobulus and Narcissus Though they were known, they weren't Christians, but members of their household or even slaves that worked for them were. And so they would be considered of the household of you know, um, this person, and yet maybe that person himself wasn't even a Christian, but they were associated with him. And so it may very well be a reference to slaves who worked for um, this man, Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my countryman, or my kinsman again. Uh, could mean, these guys could be related to Paul, um, but doesn't seem like that. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. See, another thing, 
they're of the household of Narcissus and they are in the Lord, kind of implies that some in the household there weren't and, and maybe not Narcissus himself. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, another couple of gals, who have labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Another woman. Uh, it's amazing how many of these people are women who were really serving the Lord, and Paul wanted to give them their due and give them a shout out. Verse 13, greet Rufus. I like that name. I, I really lobbied for naming one of our boys Rufus Rolf, but... <laughs> Then I remember Greg Manderson wanted me to name one of them Rudolph Ralph Rolf. But cooler heads prevailed. <laughs> Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, over in Mark chapter 15, when it talked about Simon the Cyrene, who carried the cross for Jesus, um, Mark identifies... Uh, so, you know Simon as being the father of Rufus and Alexander, and um, so many people believe that. And this is the only Rufus in the Bible. Obviously, when Mark wrote his book, people knew Rufus and Alexander. So these kids, whose dad had carried the cross for Jesus, just happened by. And yet, imagine how his life was touched as he came so close to Jesus in that way and was able to serve him in that way. And probably his kids were right there with him and witnessed this and then saw the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit there in Jerusalem and, and recognized how significant he was. And, you know, it's always fun to be connected to someone way back, you know, to have a to have a story, to have a connection where, yeah, I knew him back then. Imagine these guys as they're growing up in the church and they're like, my dad carried the cross for Jesus. Probably really proud. And, and this was probably the same Rufus. Now, obviously, Simon and perhaps Alexander had at this point gone on to be with the Lord. This is a lot of years later. But Rufus, maybe being the youngest, was still around and was probably living with his mom, taking care of his mom. And there are some people who would say that Rufus was Paul's brother because it says that it says um, his mother and mine. But it's probably just that this gal took Paul under her wing and treated him like a son. And and he, you know, a family that had an example like that of a dad who served. Um, you'd want to serve. And so it's likely that she was just a second mother to Paul, that she treated Paul as if he was her son. And again, you see these family relationships, and you can understand why the Scriptures talk about the fact that the closest bonds are our spiritual family, and often contrasting that with your relatives according to the flesh. Because as Christians, we are a family. We are related. And sometimes we don't like being related to some of the people that we're related to, just like biologically. But at the same time, we're supposed to function like a family. And you can see that Paul, who we know that he probably was married at some point, because to be a member of the Sanhedrin, that was required. We certainly know that he wasn't married when he conducted the bulk of his ministry, whether his wife left him, whether she had died, um, you know, whether they divorced, we don't know. But we don't see anything, any other familial relationships in Paul's life. He, he was a scrappy guy that kind of had to stick up for himself. And yet he found family in the body of Christ. And he wasn't short of those kinds of associations. And the more we understand what it means to be family in the family of God, the more blessed that we'll be. And the more the church will provide an inviting place for people who 
are looking for a place to settle in and to feel safe and secure and accepted and you know all of the things that family is supposed to be and yet so often biological families just come so far short of really being a safe place where you're accepted for who you are but the body of Christ is to be that way you know and it, it's one reason why i think it's so important for us as a church to take the time to welcome people that we don't recognize. And I mentioned this, I don't know, last Sunday or the Sunday before. Remember what it was like the first time you came to a church and didn't know anyone. And if we would act the way we wish people had acted at that time, I mean, how radically different the church could be. And people who need it the most would just feel that warmth. They'd feel like, your family. There are some people who, when you go to their house, they make you feel like family. They just, it's just, it just feels right. Well, that's the way church ought to feel. And the problem is, sometimes we get so comfortable with certain people and we form our cliques and we don't branch out beyond that. So if somebody new comes, they feel like they are at a family gathering, but that they're not a part of the family. And I've been in those kinds of things where you get invited over somewhere and they have all their relatives there and you don't know anybody and you feel like, I mean, I don't get any of the jokes and I don't, it's like I'm not even here. Why did you invite me here? This is uncomfortable. And, I, and it's important when you have people over to pray about, okay, who makes a good mix? Because you just don't, we've all been there. When you're at a get-together and it just doesn't mix quite right, you can't just throw the doors open. But at a church, it's to be a place where everyone who walks in that door is our guest. And we're not hustling them, not going to have them stand up and put a ribbon on them and send them a tithe envelope. You know, it's, it's not about, oh, we want you to stay, please stay. We're not going to grab onto them and, you know, tell them how to teach Sunday school the first week. But it's just like, this is supposed to be a place where it feels like home. And the only way that happens is if we deliberately do that. Now, I, always, I hear from people constantly that our church is one of the friendliest churches that people have been to, and I'm, I'm so thankful for that. You know, we have guys every service on Sunday who are out walking the, in the parking lot, and I'm so proud of those guys because... They aren't just telling people where to park. They're helping people, you know. They're they're bringing, you know, finding elderly people and walking them in here and getting them a seat. And they're they're taking their cars and parking it double somewhere so that you know it works smooth. They're making them feel welcome. I mean, and it's when I watch that and I'm just like, wow, those those donuts really work. <laughs> no, I'm I'm like, that's so cool, you know. And then. And then we have our greeters in the, in the foyer who do such a wonderful job greeting people. They greet me when I come walking in, and, I, and, I, and that's cool. But then there's a bunch of other people who just do that. There are greeters in different sections of the sanctuary. Nobody assigned them that, but they just, if they see someone sitting by themselves and before church, they're going to go and say hi and introduce themselves. And sometimes you don't want to do that because you're afraid, and especially in a church our size where there's multiple services, you don't want to come up and go, hey, welcome to our church. And they go, well, I've been here for 12 years. How come you don't know who I am? But we have to go, it's okay if that's the way it is. I mean, that, has, that can't be offensive to us. But we need to be people who understand what it is to be family. There are some churches that have a rule that the first five minutes after church ends, you're not allowed to talk to anyone that you know. And I'm not into legalism, so we're not going to institute that policy. But I like the idea of it. I mean, it's kind of cool that we look around and go, who looks like they might need to feel included? Or who is there that's here? Maybe I've seen this person for years, but I don't even know who they are, don't know anything about them. How about taking a couple minutes to, to get to know them? And, you know, if they look at you like, what are you bugging me for? Say, well, Dave told me to. <laughs> but it's creating that family welcome. You're our guest. We're glad that you're here. 
That's, um, that's so important. And we have the ladies in our office on the phones are so good at that. I mean, Pam is just, whenever I call the church and, and any of the gals really answers the phone, I'm like, that's such a nice thing to hear when you call. It's not like, if you want to hear so-and-so, press one. And if you want to, you know, it's like, people are sick of that. They like somebody to say, how may I serve you and things like that. But that's all a part of creating an environment whereby when people are, oh, they're hustling to get here and they're trying to find a parking place and, they're, and then they come here and they're like, oh, yeah, this feels good. And that's the kind of a family thing that the church is supposed to be. And you certainly see that the affection that Paul has for these people um, runs very strong in that way. Um, greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Patrobas, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Five people we know nothing about. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nerus and his sister and Olympus. Five other people we don't know anything about. <laughs> But And the brothers who are with them in verse 14 and the saints who are with them in verse 15. Just naming these groups of people and just going, and, and there's other people that hang out with them too that are, that are our brothers and um, that are fellow servants, that are saints. Verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. Um, that's not like a... French kiss. I just want to make that clear. In their culture, the holy kiss was that weird European kind of a peck on both sides of the cheek sort of a thing. Um, it was a cultural deal that was the way they would greet people. Probably a, a handshake or a slap on the back is closer to what it is today. In the church, they began to develop it into a big tradition and they actually had a time during the service when you would greet each other with a holy kiss. It came following the meal and before communion. So um, it's okay. I mean, I, that's not a... If that, some people are kissers and some people aren't. Um, we have a lady, Jean, Jeannie, who on Sunday always comes up and kisses me. And um, it's, it's nice. It's, but when she made an appointment with me one day, she goes, she, she called up and she goes, hi, I wanted to make an appointment with you. This is Jean. I'm the lady that kisses you every Sunday. And I thought, that's not a bad thing to be known for. She's an amazing woman, by the way, too, and just found out a couple months ago that she's dying of cancer. And um, she's happy about it. She's like excited to go to heaven and an uh, amazing lady. And the, the women are going to have a women's brunch coming up where she's going to share her testimony and just kind of encourage all of us. And, and, uh, but, you know, it, that's, it's totally wholesome. It's nothing creepy. It's just like, hey, I, I love you. I accept you. Maybe we don't know each other that much, but whatever says welcome, whatever says I love you, whatever says you're a part of my family, that's what, that's what he's talking about. The churches of Christ greet you. Now, he says, oh man, am I not going to get through this? I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Um, wow, two really important verses. I could go an hour on them easy. Division is something that should not be a part of the body of Christ. And there are some people who are intent on creating division. They just like the whispering. They like the, you know, criticism. They Jesus' prayer to the Father in John 17 was, Father, please make them one so that the world will know that you sent me. Unity is so important to the heart of the Lord. And everything that we teach, what he, is, what he isn't here saying is specifically they're teaching wrong doctrine and so you need to avoid them. It's 
they're causing division, which is contrary to our doctrine. What we say we believe is something that should bring us together. And anything that, it can be sound doctrine, but if it's divisive and contradictory, and it's motivated, as he says, their God is their belly, they like the feeling of being right and having somebody else be wrong. They like to judge others. They like to separate. They want to be distinct. Their ego is causing them to be divisive. And he says, note them or mark them and avoid them. Stay away from those silly arguments. Stay away from anything that has that divisive nature to it. Whatever, Because if we are divisive, we are being contrary to what we say we believe. I don't care if you have the greatest doctrinal statement in the world, and I don't care if you have some great reason why you're being divisive, because you're sticking up for what's right. The truth is it's all about you. Real doctrine ought to result in unity. Real Christian walk should result in acceptance and loving each other and being together. It should not involve Christians attacking other Christians. That is contrary to the entire point of why Jesus died. And so he says, stay away from those kind of people. That they, you know, this isn't about doctrine. This is about division, and they like to divide. They like to separate. They look for excuses to make, you know, to say, well, you're over here and I'm over there. And they always have great doctrinal reasons, supposedly, for doing it. But that in itself is contrary to the whole point of the doctrine. And so he says, you know, they got smooth words, flattering speech. It sounds good. They deceive the hearts of the simple. It's so sad when I see people who are just naive young Christians who get caught up in and sidetracked and get fooled, whether by a cult or whether by, you know, somebody else who's, you know, being, you know, causing trouble. It's, you know, young people just, it's, it's sad when people are young spiritually and they fall into that kind of a deal. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. Don't study evil. Don't be an expert on evil. Be wise in what's good. Look at what scriptures say. Don't, don't spend all of your time worrying about what everybody else is saying. Stick with what God has to say. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. You don't need to go crush Satan. The God of peace is going to do it for you if you will focus on his wisdom. And now he just tells them a bunch of people said to say hi. Timothy, my fellow worker, Lucius, Jason, Sassipater, my countrymen greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Tertius was the secretary who, who Paul was dictating to. He was the amanuensis. Gaius, my host, he was, he was staying there at his house, and the host of the whole church greets you. This guy's house was open to the church. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. Quartus, a brother, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And then a final benediction. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, all back to that gospel that this whole book was about. But now it's been made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God. By the way, who was the everlasting God who commanded that the gospel be taken to all nations? Jesus. He's talking about the Great Commission and, and calling the one who gave that command the everlasting God. Obedience to the faith, to God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Amen. What a great book. Let's pray. Lord, 
thank you for the time that we've spent in this book of Romans, the truth that's here, the example that, that Paul is to us. By him laying this down, when I think of all the things we wouldn't know had Paul not written this book to the Romans, when I think of just the simple presentation of the gospel that, that we see laid out, the Romans wrote, the, the, the simple truths that are contained in this book are just amazing, and you use this guy, Paul, to, to change the world, and all that he did was point at you, Lord. All that he did was glorify Jesus Christ, sacrificed himself, dedicated his life, so that we could figure out what it is to be a part of the family of God. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand and we'll sing a